So wood is really very sustainable. But there's a caveat, as often there is, and that is that poorly harvested wood is not sustainable. There's a lot of issues there. You know, the microbes in the soil that is released from a clear cut, as an example, add to the carbon in the air. Or what's happening in Brazil and much of the rainforest right now. I mean, there's an old saying, the best time to plant a tree is 40 years ago. The second best time is today, right now. Yeah, so we do reclaimed wood products, not just floors, siding and, and, and paneling and timbers, as much as we can do sustainably harvested of all of the same things. The direct answer to your question is you can't beat reclaimed floor from an environmental standpoint. No doubt. You can't it's just reclaimed wood. It's sitting there. It's waiting to be used up until people like us at Pioneer Millworks started to create a market for it. And Welcome to Mindful Businesses, our sustainable home, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you businesses that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Our podcast, Mindful Businesses, has since July 2019 met several innovators, creators, and thought leaders. But we realized that the process and the path to build or make your home sustainable was at best confusing and ever-evolving. In the series, Our Sustainable Home, we talk about resources, options, and innovations in the residential construction industry. We delve into what is a sustainable home. May the goal be net zero, carbon positive, and water conservation, and we provide viable solutions and options available in the market for our listeners who wish to live in a sustainable home. Today we have with us Jonathan Orban, the founder of Pioneer Millworks, reclaimed and sustainable wood products. He joins us from Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. In a world where we are asked to save our forests, and stop cutting trees. Wood is in fact one of the sustainable renewal materials available to mankind. This is sort of a contradiction, right? Why and how is wood considered sustainable? So it's actually, like so many of these questions, kind of a complex answer. But I'm going to boil it down to pretty simply. Wood as a the carbon footprint or the carbon equivalence, you could say, in its manufacturing is as low as it gets. It just grows. Cutting it down, we use it, we at least in our case, tend to use it in its found form. Whether it's found in a sustainably harvested forest or whether it's in a reclaimed timbers, we just reuse it. And so the actual impact or the carbon footprint, as we always talk about, of the actual manufacturing process is low because we're not doing a whole lot to it relative to, for instance, you know, a PVC molecule or something like that that's made overseas and shipped here, et cetera, et cetera. All the stuff we all know. So wood is really very sustainable, but there's a caveat as often there is, and that is that poorly harvested wood is not sustainable. There's a lot of issues there. You know, the microbes in the soil that is released from a clear cut as an example, add to the carbon in the air. So that's not a good thing. Or what's happening in Brazil and much of the rainforest right now, the Amazon rainforest, where huge swaths are cut down so that we can herd cattle 
or grow soybeans. Those are the issues that are occurring right now. And that is not sustainable. So all wood is not sustainable and too much wood use, frankly, is probably not sustainable either. So that gets a little bit gray in there, but as a general rule, I'm a wood guy. I like wood and we use a lot of wood. That's our fallback material. And often when you go to the store and buy a piece of lumber or wood, they have the stamp FSC. What is that? So really often, I think you're giving a lot of credit right now. We don't see that very often. Try to find an FSC certified piece of wood at Home Depot or other big box. It's hard to do if at all. But I will tell you what it is for a stewardship council certification. The FSC stamp represents the only known third party internationally recognized sustainability monitor that there is. There are other certifications you can get. One that is well known is called SFI, Sustainable Forest Initiative. That, however, is an industry based voluntarily followed set of regulate requirements, or maybe they're not even requirements, they're suggestions. It's certainly better than nothing, an SFI certified piece of paper or lumber, but it's not going to be as good as an FSC piece. Again, you don't often see it, unfortunately, but you ought to. What does that certification mean? Does it mean that the forest that it is harvested from is managed in the best possible way that we know today. That's the theory. And I'm not an expert on sustainable forestry practices. It looks at the many things that you and I would think that it would look at. For instance, the riparian zone. There are distances away from stream beds and watersheds that you're required to stay. And there are areas in a forest that may have more uh, tendency towards an endangered species habitat. That would be something else. As well as there's the replanting requirements. And, uh, and that's another one that's really good. I do want to say that all sustainable forestry is not FSC certified. There are some options. Family farms are often doing a really good job of being more forward thinking than maybe just the industrial forestry complex. But the FSC really does give you the assurance that right from the very forest, right through the manufacturing process to the end user, there is a chain of custody that suggests and implies and requires though every member of that chain to be working under certain guidelines. There's a cost that comes with that, of course. We find that it adds 15% to the cost of a piece of wood, uh, whatever that piece of wood is. But, you know, that's just a decision people have to make. One of the things that they do, and which is most people who don't live in the world that you live in, or the world of the regulators who regulate these forests, is you cut a tree and you plant a tree, and you feel that you've done no harm by planting maybe even 10 trees. But I think if you cut a tree, which has, say, a bark of you know, 10 inches and you plant even 10 trees, it takes a while for those 10 trees to absorb the same amount of carbon, create the biome in the soil that this old tree used to do. Well, of course. What would you like to, what's the alternative here? Not cut the tree and use something more carbon intensive for your building process? You know, yeah, we have to work for the future. And interestingly, trees grow 
surprisingly fast. So if we actually were to plant those one through 10 trees you just mentioned, I think that's sustainability by its very definition. You know, I'm going to have grandkids who are going to enjoy cutting or using or walking in those forests. And that happens now. I mean, there's an old saying, the best time to plant a tree is 40 years ago. The second best time is today, right now. You know, if we really did see that replanting in a thorough method, as you just described, all the time, I mean, that is sustainability. There is nothing more sustainable than a, the use of wood. And if, as long as we can keep replanting, we're good. And FSC also is really a good mechanism to make sure that's being done. How about reclaimed wood? I came across your company, Pioneer Millworks, because I was looking for reclaimed wood floors. And you have reclaimed wood floors and sustainably harvested wood floors, which has less of a carbon footprint on our planet. Yeah, so we do reclaimed wood products, not just floors, siding and, and, and paneling and timbers, uh, as much as we can do sustainably harvested of all of the same things. The direct answer to your question is you can't beat reclaimed floor from an environmental standpoint. No doubt. You can't it's just reclaimed wood. It's sitting there. It's waiting to be used up until people like us at Pioneer Millworks started to create a market for it and try to figure out how to use it and get the best yield from it and make it work. We're going back 30 years now, I guess. That wood would just as likely find its way in the in the landfill or burned, frankly, and both of which are really a drag. It's gorgeous product oftentimes, or at least it has a story to tell, as we say. The use of reclaimed wood is impossible to beat from an environmental standpoint. That said, it has limitations. It's more expensive and therefore has a higher barrier to entry because of the additional labor it costs to process it and the amount of loss and waste involved in that. So it's more expensive and we want as many people to use as good wood as we can get. The other thing is sometimes it's just not appropriate. For siding, for instance, you know, we would like to side all of America with wood. The truth is there isn't enough reclaimed wood for that. And also reclaimed wood doesn't necessarily make always good siding the way, for instance, some of our sustainably harvested products do, like Akoya, which is radiata pine, all FSC certified that's been treated in a very beneficial way, but that comes with a 50-year warranty. And that's hard to beat. So from just a practical standpoint, and I'm a practical guy as well as a optimist. So I'm optimistic about our future. But on the other hand, I'm also practical. People want to do better than using something like cementaceous siding, for instance, which takes a lot of BTUs to create and to ship and, and all of that sort of stuff. I need to be able to supply an option that is practical for them. So reclaimed wood is great, but it's not the only answer. I wanted to touch about the point that we talked about the forests in Brazil, the rainforests which are burning and also which are often cut down as a source of livelihood for the farmers. If you look at America, the map of America, I want to say 200 years ago possibly, we probably had several more acres of forested land which we cut down to grow the grains that feed us and we are able to export. What right do we have to tell the poor Brazilian farmer who needs to maybe even just feed his family not to cut the trees down. Well, I'm going to pause simply giving respect to the size of your question because 
Certainly, you're not going to get every answer out of me. To say what right we have, though, implies that it is the poor farmer who's actually getting the、uh, profit and the value out of that land. And unfortunately, that's rarely the case. Most of the time, these are large industrial commercial entities that we can't even imagine the size of. I'm not sure, but you're probably not going to get me to shed a tear over Archer Midland Daniels. You know their、uh, their environmental aspects or the amount of profit they might lose by doing a better job. Sorry about that. I just probably not going to go there. On the other hand, you know certainly some of what you say may or may not be true, but I doubt the bulk of it is. My guess is that we're really talking about the industrial commercial complex that you know brings profit into the few and at the cost of that poor farmer you just mentioned. I mean, we could go on on that for a long time. Honestly, we're talking about socio-economic, political wins that are bigger than anything I can imagine. But they are existing, and we can't ignore them. You mentioned that you offer wood siding, and the other product that Pioneer Millworks has, which drew me to your company, and the technique is shaosugiban. It's a Japanese method. Which a friend just by chance mentioned. Hey, Vidya, have you heard about the Japanese burned timber techniques for siding? And I was like, "What is that?" And I googled and came across the word "shao sugiban," and hence Pioneer Mills, which I was already exploring for the wood floors. I realize you carry that too. So talk a little bit about shao sugiban. I think、um, shosugiban is, as you already mentioned, a traditional Japanese technique. It's originally、uh, developed to do two things. One is to pretreat the wood against、uh, vermin by burning the sugars out of the sap wood, so leaving less yummy food for little bacteria to eat. And the other one is to slow down the spread of fire. In Tokyo and in other major cities, houses are built close together. 300 years ago, they were all built with、uh, wood and wood siding. Fire jumps from wood to wood very easily. But if you ever look at、uh, the way fire jumps, it doesn't really land in a fertile ground if there's already a carbon layer on the outside. That's one of the cool things about. Timber framing, our other business, for instance, which is timber framing. You know, I've built homes for three firemen that I know of, and they all have said, if I'm going to be on the roof of my house while it's burning, putting it out, I want to be it on wood because the outside chars and therefore starves the fire from continuing. Charred timber is always going to be stronger than even steel timber, which will anneal or bend and almost melt per se under heavy fire. So the same set of information applies to siding, where if there's already a charred face, it's harder for the fire to find a foothold in it. Of course, there's a lot of other issues involved with the fire spread, but this was one of them, and one of the reasons why it became a popular and、uh, well-used、uh, method of siding in Japan over the last.、Uh, Really, not too much more than about a dozen years or so. It's really taken fire, so to speak, in the U.S. Here,、uh, partly because it's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, probably because it's gorgeous. Frankly, it's to die for. Just when you feel it, when you just touch it, you hold it. It's a very tactile, very pleasing to your eye, very earthy looking compared to even just a regular piece of wood. 
Yeah, and it is wood. So it goes back to our earlier conversation about the sustainability of wood and the low carbon input of wood. But what we do is we burn it in a, in a homemade rolling floor oven that we made and we burn it deep on top. And then sometimes people like it in that charred or alligator surface, deep charred surface. But sometimes we just wire brush that off, which gives us this really rich tones of deep grooves where the wire brushing has taken away the early wood of the surface. And then we add colors to it, all sorts of different colors. It just gives us a really wide creative palette because we're all ADD. We have short attention spans. So we want to just have lots of colors. We like colors. So do our clients, apparently. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Yes, with the cell phone and the phone and the iPad and having the phone conversation at the same time. Yes, that's our life these days. How you burn the wood, is that similar to how the Japanese have been doing it traditionally, or is it different? It is different. I mean, the traditional Japanese Shosugiban methodology was very slow, just wouldn't make it in today's uh, need to move the product along and get people to make a living, et cetera, et cetera, and make it a more affordable product. In their case, the truly traditional, and you can Google this, the truly traditional is you would stack some boards up vertically, start a fire on the bottom, let the fire burn up the sides of these timbers to the top. And that's how they would burn the original. What we do is we put it on rollers, we burn the back lightly so that we're pre-treating and stabilizing the back. And then we turn it around and burn the front more aggressively. It's probably... 50 times faster, to be honest with you, and probably safer too, now that I think about it. My little research showed me that they almost stacked it like chimneys in a triangle, like three pieces of wood stacked like a chimney. They burn from the bottom and they seem to do it on site. So, which is again, not feasible in our American context. No, it really just isn't. So our neighborhood associations would never allow that. Neither would my insurance company. (laughs) Is the outcome similar or same? As far as I can tell, again, I wasn't around hundreds of years ago, but, you know, the look of it does seem about the same. The goals is about the same. I would argue that by us burning the back first might even be better than it was. And similarly, the original, the classic Japanese uh, wood was sugi or uh, really in the cypress family, not the cedar family, as many people think. And I always say that if the Japanese had access to some of our North American woods that we use, uh, they would be much happier to do that. So the idea of doing everything traditionally, I, I think, sort of falls away in the face of just improvement. So why do you say that? Why are our woods superior? Right now, the cypress that you get, the Japanese cypress you get out of Japan, obviously, it's a much faster growing tree. They're usually smaller trees. My guess is they're well managed just because Japan. But nonetheless, they're very thin pieces of wood with very few rings in them. Whereas we're pulling it out of uh, North American woods and Pacific North American woods, which, you know, that's the finest forests in the country. And again, when one of our products we use is larch, which I consider to be a highly underrated wood, and so therefore underutilized. So a lot of our wood is that. We also use FSC certified Douglas fir, which is 
of course, not only beautiful, but sustainable in the way that I just mentioned. And we also use a product, as I mentioned earlier, Koya. All of those burn really well. Uh, they take a fire well, and um, they are local to us and our manufacturing. So uh, we're able to access them and uh, send them through our system pretty uh, efficiently. Isn't Akoya grown in New Zealand and they have a process that they go through in the Netherlands and then they come here to be burned? Akoya is a South American plantation-grown radiata pine, forest sewage, stewardship certified, can be New Zealand, can be uh, actually Chilean, it comes from a number of different places. Right now, it goes to Netherlands where it gets acetylized, which is a, for the sake of a better word, a vinegar kind of a treatment that's pressure treated in, so not the uh, difficult solvents that we use in the pressure treating that you might be familiar with, and then comes here to us where we then do burn it and distribute it. Much of the travel is done overseas, which as a general rule is a more environmentally sound way to move product because if you've ever seen a container ship going across the harbor, you know how much is on there. So they're moving quite a bit of wood, quite a bit of products in those container ships. But really the exciting news is parent company of Akoya has agreed to open up a domestic plant within the next couple of years. So we're really excited to be able to have this be a domestically manufactured product as soon as possible. I would encourage people to Google Akoya. What I had the opportunity when I visited the plant, Pioneer Millworks plant in Farmington, New York, to see the rings. The rings of the Akoya are very far apart because it's a fast-growing tree. And I was told that it absorbs the vinegar solution much faster. Hence, when it burns, it burns very rapidly and it could last 50 to 100 years, but it's far more sustainable because I'm not sure how quickly this tree grows. Most plantation woods are, those kinds of species are chosen for their fast growing and easier rotations, shorter rotations. That makes them more economically viable. And yes, it certainly is going to, the radiata pine is going to soak up much of the a treating process easier than others. It's a little like shortleaf southern yellow pine right now. It is also the same thing. That's why it's used in the East Coast as your main pressure treating wood because it can soak up quite a bit of wood of uh, the product. You know, we're into the technical weeds here, which I always love. Don't get me wrong, but it is. Uh, it does seem like it's a you know a fast growing tree. I don't actually personally know why they're not doing plantations in the Northern Hemisphere, but they aren't that I know of. We're talking a little bit more about wood and I'd like to talk about reclaimed bond wood or any reclaimed wood. Can you burn that? So you get the benefit of Shoksukiban and you also don't have to harvest. We don't burn that. I don't see that as economically viable. One of the reasons why people tend to like the reclaimed wood is the story that it brings. And so oftentimes when we're using it, you mentioned barn wood, but it, reclaimed wood can come from a lot of sources, but often there's a patina of age on its surface, as I like to say. People are buying the story that that implies. So for us to completely change the outside look does get us away from that. And as I mentioned earlier, the reclaimed wood is a limited resource. And so I wanna use it for its best purpose. And part of its best purpose is the story that it tells. 
it reminds us that we're all part of this long continuum and the wood was around before us and probably will be around after us and the signs of previous life that we often see and celebrate in reclaimed woods help us remember that. So you founded Pioneer Mill Works. When was that? 90 about before you were born and most people listening. You are too kind, sir. (laughs) (laughs) I find it a fascinating story of how small companies grow. We're a timber frame company. New Energy Works Timber Framer has been around since the mid-80s. And I was basically just looking for a stable wood. That's all. I mean, it was before I was truly, truly ignited into this idea that of sustainability. At the time, I was a timber framer because I liked the way you insulated timber frames. It was a great way to keep a house warm and celebrate the craft of building. But at the time, I was using green East Coast oak timbers, and they moved more than I really wanted them to move. So I was looking for something stable. Back then, uh, the kiln drying industry had not really come up to speed for big timbers. And I came upon reclaimed wood. That's a long story as to why I found it, but it clearly filled a need for us to look for a tree, a timber uh, that would be still looking as good with our joinery 10, 20, 100 years from now as it did when we started. So when we originally did the joinery. So originally I started just because I liked the stability. Quickly though, it also became about the story and just as quickly it became about the environmental aspects that you have been talking about. So for us, it's a three-pronged win which is stability, story, and sustainability. But in doing so, you know, when you've got an old timber from a bridge or a warehouse or a whatever barn, and you resaw it to fit just what we're looking for, the new product, you end up with byproducts. And those byproducts are board stock or all sorts of things. And you have to find a home for them because otherwise you're just wasting them. And in business, you just can't afford to be very wasteful. So we started creating all these other products. And like a lot of children, Pioneer Millworks grew up to be as big or as demanding or as at least uh, successful as its parent. And so even today, we run both of these businesses, New Energy Works and Pioneer Millworks. And they both run in parallel. They're related. As I said earlier, we're all wood people here, but they do different things. One is supplying wood products to the industry, and the other is creating homes or buildings that uh, heavy timber construction and high-performance envelopes. wanted to take a minute to define what is timber, because we have listeners from all over the world. A timber would be a uh, piece of wood which is almost a foot 10 inches by 10 inch the simple way to think about it is first you start with a tree you cut the tree down and bucket to lengths of logs and then you cut that log into usually rectilinear or squarish or rectangle shapes and those are timbers true definition of dimensional wood is usually two inch by four up to 12 inches that's dimensional wood but when you start getting three inch thick or four inch thick by whatever we call those timbers interestingly if you indeed have people from all over the country in europe 
Almost any wood used to build a house is called timber. When I say, when I go to London and say I'm a timber framer, that's like saying in the US I'm a, a rough framer or a dimensional framer with two by sixes and two by eights. Depends on where you are, of course, but for me, I use the word timber as a resawn square or rectangle piece that's at least four inches by some bigger dimension. And yes, as you said earlier, 10 by 10s are not uncommon, 12 by 12s. You start getting too much bigger than that, and you're really uh, requiring you to saw down a much bigger tree, which is not always our goal. When I visited your plant in Farmington, New York, I was impressed at how cordial the atmosphere was, how people were proud of the company, and they had a sense of ownership. So you are partially employee-owned, right? Yes, about four years ago, we took the first step towards becoming employee-owned by becoming 30% employee-owned. And by the end of this year, 2022, we'll be 100% employee-owned. It was more than just a sense of ownership that you found. It was actual ownership. Consider that an important part of sustainability because I think for a business to succeed and do good things, it actually has to be sustainable. It has to be well-run. It has to be has to have people who want to be there. I myself have uh, moved out to the West Coast to start a West Coast branch of the same company. And I did that 14 years ago. We are one company, two coasts. But I always say I could not have done that, leaving the mothership, so to speak, unless I was leaving behind people who felt that they were owners and that they were going to do as good a job as if I was there, whether I was there or not. Interestingly, though, the feeling of ownership is sort of like the feeling of having money to go buy food in the grocery store. It's okay, but you really actually need the money to go buy the groceries. So I've been working hard over the last number of years to change it from a feeling of ownership to actual ownership. And as I say, by the end of this year, we're using a program called the uh, Employee Stock Ownership Plan to an ESOP to become fully employee-owned. I'm very excited about that. For me, it means that the people who have helped us all become prosperous and effective are actually now going to reap more than their salary or bonus rewards. They're actually going to be successful in the same way that the company is successful. And you know, a lot of times we look at what is the definition of success. For me, that is threefold. We are what we call a triple bottom line company. So our definition of success has three definitions, not just are we profitable? Are we making ownership wealthy? No, that's important that we are profitable so that we can move forward. And that's one of the three P's of the triple bottom line company. The other two are planet and people. Without a planet, who cares if we're profitable? That just seems so logical. It doesn't matter your political or your religious beliefs. That's about as logical as I can imagine. We need a planet. We need it to be healthy. And the other is people. People also is one that thoughtful treatment of our coworkers, of our community, of our clients, of people all over. You know, we're, we've been for many years very involved in Nicaragua, helping supply uh, solar systems and solar ovens down there. Well, you know, they're people too. And so this whole idea of a triple bottom line instead of just one bottom line, I think helps people to care about business and, their, and where they work. You know, not everybody, of course, but as a general rule, we think we're healthier as a business 
and therefore more able to be profitable if, in fact, we have more than just one definition of what prosperity is. So people, planet, profit, that's how we work. It's kind of how we've always worked, but we really didn't know it was called that for a long time. This business model was very obvious to you. Why aren't more businesses seeing it? What is your hesitation? The ESOP world is limited. You have to be a certain size. We're about as small a company as you can get and pay for the costs of uh, doing the ESOP. How big are you? About 160 people. And it's not necessarily just the people. It's the, you know, can you afford it? Unfortunately, it's very expensive to do an ESOP. How so? About $200,000 per step. And we're doing, and then it costs about $45,000 a year to maintain it. So that is kind of a barrier to entry for many of the smaller businesses. For the mid-sized businesses and larger, my own size and larger, I'm not really sure what holds it back. Too often the transitional process from founder to the next generation, whatever that is, the next ownership generation, is colored by Oh, I don't know, maybe greed, if I can be clear, uh, maybe fear, maybe lack of knowledge about it. I found it to be actually a pretty complex process, honestly, to become an ESOP. In these last eight weeks, between now and the end of the year, I'm quite busy with developing new boards of directors and governance, you know, all of the many requirements involved in doing a good job. And ESAP itself is highly regulated by the government because there is the potential for misuse. And so, again, the Department of Labor, which controls things like uh, uh, retirement plans and the IRS, which, of course, controls taxes, both are keeping a close eye on ESAPs, which I'm all for. But it is a little bit time consuming and costly. I would say that I don't know why more people don't do an ESAP. Of the owners that I talk to who are getting to be my age and thinking about transition, I always say there's three options. One is they can carry you out in a box and you leave a mess behind you, or maybe you can sell it to a third party, arm's length transaction to a third party. And that often ends up not the way people hoped. Maybe the owner gets away with you know, all of the wealth they had hoped to get, but it leaves a, can leave a mess behind, honestly. And oftentimes those transactions are not successful. The success rate for uh, transitioning on ESOP, however, is very high because, gosh, you're transitioning into the people who will have a stake in what the future looks like for them. So, gosh, I don't know. One of the crucial part of corporate governance is succession and a succession plan. And I would imagine if a person is so invested in their company that they're not willing to let go, one of the main things that they should do is have a good succession plan so that their legacy or their name is carried forward in the way they envision. And ESOP, if a company can afford it, is a viable option for a good uh, succession plan. You're reading my mail. I just don't understand why more people don't do it at my size. I totally understand below this size, you know, your $10 million and under company or your, oh, there are so many 
thoughtful, small businesses out there, people who really care. In their case, it's harder for them. If they're going to transition, they have to find maybe key members of their business, maybe think about a workers own co-op, which is real interesting, but you know, challenging at times, way to transition a company. I talk to people all the time who are my age and are thinking in the 60s, in other words, and are thinking about, gosh, what am I going to do in a few years? I can't work forever. I need to retire, but also I'd like this thing to carry on. And they need to start the transitional process earlier than they think. That's the main thing. And they need to start digging in. There are employee-owned support agencies. There are, or they need to develop their own staffing that may be the people who take it over. But whatever I say to people is the most important thing is start earlier than you think. We've been working on this for years. Thank you, Jonathan, for coming on Mindful Businesses. This has been a very enjoyable conversation. And I learned a lot about your background and your vision for the company. Thank you again, Jonathan. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Jonathan Orpin of Pioneer Millworks. I'm Vedya Ayer with Mindful Businesses, our sustainable home, a podcast series that helps you navigate the complex process of making your home sustainable. We would love to hear from you. Send a voice note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Buffalo, New York. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Roseanne Korean. Our advisors are... Jim Stone and Anupama Pastricha. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.